The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. To be holding back something so foundational to my life is to not be fully known. And worse, to be presenting a photoshopped and airbrushed version of the truth compared to what really was going on, which is I wasn't just someone selling pants and raising rounds and ultimately this at least modestly successful exit. I was also wrestling with this ghost. I was also in denial of the diagnosis that I received when I was a senior in college. I'm Maura Arons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. Think differently, we're told in business, especially if we're starting businesses. Break down walls, disrupt, innovate. Today's guest did just that alongside his co-founder in the men's retail space. They brought together a few innovations in men's pants, one in the way clothes were made and the other in the way people shopped. Bonobos really began in earnest in 2007 and developed a really successful online-offline retail model that we see in so many places today, with brands like Away, Casper, Dollar Shave Club, Glossier, and more. The founders eventually sold Bonobos to Walmart for a whole lot of money. Andy Dunn, our guest today, was spotted early on in his life as someone with entrepreneurial instincts. And Andy enjoyed the privileges of the rock star entrepreneur. What fewer people understood, including Andy himself, was an underlying mental health issue so severe it came to a head when he woke up in a psychiatric hospital and was charged with two counts of assault. Here's his story. It seems like people spotted you pretty early as a potential entrepreneur. There's a line in your book where I think a professor says, Andy, you're an entrepreneur. Why do you think that was? What did they see? It's it's a, such a great question, Maura, because I remember thinking when I first heard that, you know, I've never done anything entrepreneurial. I've never built anything. I never had a lemonade stand or a, you know, a lawn mowing business <laughs> or a, some friends in college had this business where they were helping students move in and out. That seemed miserable to me, like carrying boxes around. So I didn't feel like I had that entrepreneurial gene, nor was there really any example in my family, with the possible exception of my maternal grandfather, uh, who was like a, a building contractor in India. So in a way, I would say, I don't know what they saw. Hmm. And then in retrospect, what I might surmise is I love people. Hmm. And I love trying to magnetize people around things I care about. And so maybe the earliest sign of that would be in high school, there was no advanced placement classes offered to sophomores. And I thought this was a travesty. And so I went to the principal of the school and said, how come you don't offer any advanced placement classes for sophomores? 
And he said, well, the only subject that we could do that in would be computer science, and we don't have a computer science class offered here. And I said, well, why not? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, we didn't know if there would be enough demand for it. He said, but look, there is this one teacher, Mr. Mulvihill, who could teach it. So if you went and asked him, <laughs> so I went to Mr. Mulvihill and I said, hey, would you teach an advanced placement course in computer science? The language at the time, I think, was Pascal, which is, you know, yep. 100-year-old computer language, <laughs> science language now. And he said, well, you'd need 15 students. And so I went door to door to my classmates and said, who wants to take this computer, you know, Pascal thing? And recruited the class, then got the teacher, we presented it to the principal, and then we had this like class. And so I guess even though that wasn't about business or it wasn't, it didn't have a profit motive from a long time ago, I've loved bringing people together and trying to create things that otherwise wouldn't exist. And, and I guess people saw that in me in many ways before I saw it in myself. Well, it took a lot of chutzpah too. Yeah, the chutzpah <laughs> part I've got. You also, you're, you're gifted as a child. I'm always interested in people who are labeled intellectually gifted and you skipped a grade. What effect did that have on you in retrospect? Yeah, I don't know. I I'm so excited as a new dad to go through this journey of the of the world of education now, you know, 40 years later from my own journey to understand how the thinking has evolved. Hmm. So I the concept of gifted sounds weird to me now, but I remember, you know, getting into the gifted program when I was in kindergarten and first grade. And although I was young, I remember being excited about that. Mm -hmm. Like I remember being excited about the challenge. And the sense of differentiation from my peers, I was really competitive from an early age, wasn't particularly good at sports. Mm. So competing via academics was something that drove me from probably younger than is, than is healthy or recommended, <laughs> I don't know. And then in second grade, my mom pulled me aside. I think I'd been in the school play or something like that. And I remember this one evening where she said, hey, we've been talking to Mrs. Bastido and Mrs. Bastido was this wonderful teacher I had. She taught me both in kindergarten and in second grade. And she said, you know, they're thinking that you should probably skip third grade, you know, next year and go straight to fourth grade. And I was like, what? <laughs> you can do that? Like, I was so pumped. Yeah. I was like, this is great. Like, what are we waiting for, people? You know, they asked me what I thought. And apparently they'd been talking about it amongst themselves for a while. And and I said, let's do it. And then, you know, and then it was complicated. Third grade, it turns out, is the year that you learn cursive. I don't know if they even teach cursive anymore in this day and age. Um, so I was kind of backed up on that. And and then socially, I, you know, I don't think we really thought about the consequences downstream of being a year younger, mm. right? And so kind of fast forward to high school and, you know, formative things like playing sports, I probably would have been a decent player in the year below me, but in the year above and with a late onset of puberty, I wasn't very good. So I, I kind of, I wasn't aware of the ways that, hey, just because you're academically or maybe intellectually in a certain place doesn't mean that you're going to be ready for it socially mm -hmm. um, or in terms of your physical development and the way that your physical development impacts early dating stuff and <laughs> all kinds of dynamics like are you going to be the kid that gets your butt kicked because you're just like, you know, the runt of the class? And so I think we didn't really think it through fully. We mm. just dove into it. And I think I was a big part of once I heard about it, I was uh, I was on a mission to do it, to skip that grade. So your book, you call it a ghost story. 
But I think it's also very much the portrait of a male entrepreneur, right? It is. It's it's your growth story and it's a ghost story. How do you think those two are related? So it's a beautiful question. I hadn't really considered I hadn't considered it in that way. You know, I was exchanging notes with a friend this morning and he said, Are you excited that your story is about to be out there? And I thought to myself, I haven't replied to his note yet. Hmm. I, I am excited in the singular regard that there's been something hidden about me and that whatever someone knows of me from the outside looking in on the entrepreneurial journey, maybe the most important thing in my life, the unexpected, uh, whatever we call it these days, kind of black swan event that shaped me and my development is missing. It, you know, ha- It hasn't been disclosed. Yeah to be holding back something so foundational to my life is to not be fully known and worse to be presenting a photoshopped and airbrushed version of the truth compared Mm -hmm. to what really was going on, which is I wasn't just someone selling pants and building this new way to do it and raising rounds and ultimately this at least modestly successful exit, Mm -hmm. I was also wrestling with this ghost. I was also in denial of the diagnosis that I received when I was a senior in college of bipolar disorder type one. Mm -hmm. And it also turns out that that is an illness that is disproportionately affects young men. It turns out that that is an illness that the preliminary and I would say statistically insignificant data sets suggest indexes seven to one in entrepreneurs compared to the general population. Hmm. And in the general population, that diagnosis rate is somewhere just under 3%, and that might be underdiagnosed. So to your point, yeah, we're talking about maybe one in five entrepreneurs are facing some kind of a mood disorder or variant thereof or bipolar disorder. That's a hell of a lot. To say nothing, it's quite a lot. Yeah. It's quite a lot, one in five, right? And if we then segment that by gender, maybe within within um, men, it's even higher. And so at some point I felt, I have to tell the story. I have to share this. Leaving this as a ghost is in service to no one. Mm. And then bringing it forward, which would be maybe the least expected thing one would do, <laughs> would be not only something that might be useful to people in this ecosystem, but also would serve me in terms of my own integration, right? By definition, if there's something about ourselves that we can't share, the implication is that it's something that we ought to be ashamed of or that we are ashamed of. And I just got sick of being ashamed. You've got to integrate your trauma into your story. Otherwise, it just keeps repeating. A hundred percent. And the truth is, and this is the key for me, people love hearing the unexpected vulnerable truths about your life story. Mm. They are, it is more connecting than your success. Success might be something to be admired or respected or emulated. It might also invite jealousy or other more messy emotions. But people, when they know about your struggle, that always invites someone in. Mm. It, it turns on the empathy 
it activates this uniquely beautiful human thing that we have when we're at our best, which is empathy for others. And it also is a reminder. Everyone's having a hard time, no matter what it looks like on some dimension. Yeah. And it creates a connectedness. And we know it when we hear it in others, it makes us feel better <laughs> to know we're not the only ones struggling or suffering because in some way, at some time, we, we all do. We all are. It's funny. I just re-listened to your interview with Guy Raz for How I Built This, and you mention a few times that you had some depressions, but you don't talk about bipolar. You come across as like a pretty happy, blessed kind of guy. <laughs> you know, it was it was yeah. a little jarring for me. I had literally just finished your book and I'm listening to you talk to Guy and I'm like, whoa. I know he's not telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like everything I said to Guy was true and yet it wasn't the whole truth. Yeah. If we can snapshot some vignettes about how Bonobos got built in some business challenges and maybe a bit on the co-founder dynamics and yeah, then dial in that. I was dealing with some mental health challenges, present the depression part of the story, which is thankfully, I think further, we're further along in accepting depression. Mm. We're further along in talking about it. We're normalizing it. You know, we've come a long way and yet there's different kinds of depression. Mm -hmm. One kind is unipolar depression, which is you get depressed. And another kind is bipolar depression which is you have a mixture of mood states between low and high. And in the case of bipolar disorder, there's at least two types, type two and type one. In type one, which is my illness, on the high side, you can become psychotic. You can experience what's called mania. You can be typically hospitalized for that. On the low side, it might not just be, you know, day in, day out depression, which is awful but acute or clinical depression, which is to say, can't get out of bed, can't function. Right. And what's around the corner from that is suicidal ideation. And so I think where I was when I gave that interview with Guy was I was at the beginning of a journey of disclosure, mm -hmm. but I hadn't gotten the courage. I hadn't done enough therapy. I wasn't yet in a place to be able to tell the bigger story. I was a year or a year and a half out of Bellevue. I had just miraculously made it through um, this moment of hospitalization and arrest and putting the pieces back together and somehow pulled off the deal. And somehow my wife really on the, the iron backbone of her spine and on her um, unbending love, we rebuilt our lives. I rebuilt myself. So I wasn't ready yet. And it was going to take more years to get to the place that I got to about two years later where I said, okay, I'm now ready to actually lift the veil on that the <laughs> other 40% of the story. And that, that then began the journey of writing the book. I want you to tell us a little bit about your manic episode at Bellevue and start by giving us the context of where you were in the Bonobos journey, because it is, 
it it was mind blowing for me reading your book as someone who has bipolar two and and just you know doesn't have nearly uh, the severity of what you have to think about. You say at one point the need to function became an antidepressant. It seems to me that the sheer will to get done what you did is incredible. So I want you to set the scene a little bit of the episode that led you to Bellevue and 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 what work was like around that too. Yeah, and thanks Maura for sharing that and and I think yeah. all these uh all these illnesses can be awful in their own right and then I also want to emphasize that you you need no diagnosis for your for things to be awful, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, we talk about leaders disclosing their mental health challenges and this goal and mission that I have to normalize that disclosure. And in leaders that I'm talking to, I, I emphasize, hey, it doesn't matter that you don't have bipolar disorder or fill <laughs> right. in the blank. Life is very hard for Life everyone. Life is hard. Yeah. So setting the stage, I was, I just didn't see it coming at all. You know, the last time I had had a hospitalization from mania, I was a senior in college. I was a couple weeks off of the first experience using mushrooms. I was drinking a lot. I was smoking a lot of pot. It was the turn of the millennium. And I ended up in the hospital for a week with what's called a manic episode. And for those of you listening who aren't familiar with it, basically it's delusions of grandeur, elevated speech patterns, impaired judgment, Basically, I would say that your brain disconnects from your body and you might start thinking and saying things that are sort of implausible, impossible in the real world, whether that's thinking you could fly or walk into a tiger's cage and talk Mm -hmm. to the tiger or drive down the highway, you know, the wrong way and weave through the cars or, you know, frequently these messianic delusions that you're God, or you're a prophet, or you're here to save the world, or you now possess some universal truth. So that that happened to me when I was 20. Frequently, the shame and the humiliation and the embarrassment of the things that one says or does during such an episode makes it without really clear-eyed understanding and love from family and friends met with the right psychiatric care, therapy, and medication, it's often that it just gets buried, which is what we did in in my family. We just buried it. We decided it hadn't happened. It was a vestige of the drug use. The discharging doctor said, look, if Andy doesn't have another incident within five years, it's quite possible this was a one-off. And at the same time, I had this diagnosis, right? Bipolar disorder type one. And what type one means is that you've You've had one manic episode. If you have one manic episode, you're done. Like that's your diagnosis, like it or not. Mm-hmm. And what it means is that you're going to take medication every day for the rest of your life if you're on top of it. And you're going to see a doctor or a psychiatrist or at least a therapist once a week. And that's just a very hard message to absorb when you're 20 years old. Yeah. So, uh, and then the suicide rates. I mean, it's 60% of people with bipolar one attempt suicide in their lives and mm. 20% commit suicide. And so if you're 20 years old and someone tells you, here's this illness that you have, it means there's probably a one in five chance you're going to kill yourself and then a three in five chance that at some point you'll try. You can't hear that. 
it's very hard to take that in. You're, you're kind of 20 years old. You're at the you know, top of the world. Literally a week earlier, you thought you were God. And now you're back to earth and someone's telling you this. And so we buried it. And fast forward 16 years later, I was nine years into building bonobos. You know, I was 36 years old. I had an incredible girlfriend, first really great relationship I'd ever been in as an adult. We had hundreds and hundreds of employees and had raised over a hundred million of capital. You know, I wasn't always the best leader, but I was a directionally um, successful executive, you know, a founder who'd made some of the journey to being a CEO Mm -hmm. and actually in so many ways was in a good place. And yet that's the irony of mania uh, with unmedicated, untreated bipolar disorder is that it often emerges in the best of times. The trigger might be something good, Mm. right? So the trigger might be a wedding, the birth of a child, a financial windfall that My doctor, Dr. Z, he often says that mania is the flight from depression, that depression is so Mm -hmm. bleak that when we get in a good mood, we want to hang on to that mood forever and we just run. Mm. And so that's where I was in 2016. I had just made the decision that I wanted to ask my then girlfriend to marry me. I had put a hold down on a ring in Brazil. She's from Rio. So I, I was in a good place. Yeah. And unfortunately, what that meant was I stopped sleeping. She was on a trip to China for her for her job. She was in a job where she was back and forth. And while she was gone, I was going out every night. I was, as mentioned, unmedicated in a traditional way, but I was medicated in a very um, bad way to be a, a very bad way to be medicated, which was I was drinking a lot. Mm. And alcohol served a role as a antipsychotic because when I was feeling really good, I would go out and drink. And it turns out that alcohol is a downer. So it would bring me back down to earth. And people who I work with used to not understand it. I would be out every night having three, five, seven drinks, and then back at it the next morning. Well, it turns out what that was doing was it was keeping me in orbit from taking off on the high side. Um, And unfortunately in this case, it, you know, it didn't do the trick. Manuela came back to, uh, to New York and my brain had detached from my body. I was talking a mile a minute. I was having psychotic thoughts. Uh, She called her mom over to figure out what was going on. I was howling at the moon in Mm. the bed. And within, you know, four or five hours, I was, you know, zipped in on the way to Bellevue where I spent a week first in the psychiatric emergency room and then on the psychiatric ward. Hmm. And it was at that moment that as I returned to earth, as I came back to sanity and was putting it together, it was all of a sudden very clear that the bipolar disorder type one diagnosis I had received 16 years earlier was, was absolutely true. It was unquestionable. My whole family flew out and just posted up shop in New York and my mom, dad, sister, everyone was really clear-eyed and it was like, all right, let's deal with this. You know, I knew I needed to get medicated. I knew I needed to get treated. And I walked out so excited to reunite with everyone and and walked straight into handcuffs and was charged with with felony assault. And that's kind of when a new a new personal floating hell began. Because you had punched Manuela and her mom when you were in a manic state. Exactly. 
So while I had no memory of it, I noticed that Manuela, when she came to visit me in the psych ward, probably it took me till about day four or five in that week to get out of my own head and out of my own messianic manic state to actually reclaim the empathy that is, Mm. I feel like core to my personality when not psychotic. And so one of the first times I feel like my family would know that I'm back to earth is asking something about them, right? Versus just who knows, ranting or raving about, you know, the coming flood and how climate change is going to destroy the world. And by the way, things that might be, might be on some level true, but you know, that no one has biblical prophetic ability around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Will AI improve our lives or exterminate the species? What would it take to abolish poverty? Are you eating enough fermented foods? These are some of the questions we've tackled recently on The Next Big Idea. I'm Rufus Griscom, and every week I sit down with the world's leading thinkers for in-depth conversations that will help you live, work, and play smarter. Follow The Next Big Idea wherever you get your podcasts. How do you go back to work after that? I mean, you were released from Bellevue. The police did not press charges, thank God, right? You didn't have to go to jail or do anything. But like, how do you then show up at work as the leader, as the boss? Yeah, so the day I left, you know, it was it was a horrifying day. I spent a day in jail. I think it was the 6th Precinct and then down to what they call the tombs underneath city center, the courts mm. in lower Manhattan. And to Manuela and her mom, Lenny's credit, they basically told the prosecutor, you know, this was a mental health episode. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as long as Andy takes care of himself, we're good with him. And the city of New York or the state of New York, to its credit, doesn't believe, quote unquote, at face value, what potential victims of domestic violence have to say. Mm -hmm. And so they did something called ACD, which is an adjournment in contemplation of a dismissal where basically it was like, we'll watch this for six months. And then if nothing happens, the case will be dismissed, you know, expunged and sealed. And so to your point, you know, I had to just get back to life. And what was remarkable, remarkably bad luck was, you know, I wanted to get back to work. And the first day back was this thing called CEO review, where there are 60 employees in a room presenting the, the collection for the next season of, you know, men's pants and shirts and sweaters and jackets. And the whole day, it's an eight hour day, is a conversation between me as the CEO and that at that time and the team about the inventory investment decisions that they're making. And so I've got gauze covering my left hand where I had like punched through a glass pane. And then later, as we mentioned, I had struck Manuela. I pushed her mother to the ground and kicked her. That was the felony charge. 
who was felony assault of a senior citizen, misdemeanor mm-hmm. assault of Manuela. Literally a few days earlier, I'd been at Bellevue and here I was in front of 60 people at a startup office in the Flatiron, you know, running a meeting and trying to move on and just on one level thinking, I'm so glad to be free and to be just talking about pants and how lucky am I to be doing my job. And also then just wondering when the hammer was going to drop a, a story in Business Insider right, um, or the New York Post, you know, being in and out of the courts and having a story come out that I couldn't control where, you know, the implication would be that I was a violent person where the understanding of what had happened wouldn't be nuanced. I hadn't even worked through it myself. And that could really just bring everything down. Would I have to step down from my job? Would the company's reputation be tarnished? And all these people who over the years I, you know, tried to be a decent leader to, would they now see me in a different light? Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was like just waiting for the shoe to drop every day for six months <gasps> at the same time as I went through the most catatonic depression that I've ever been in as so frequently follows the big high yeah. is the long, you know, and debilitating low. How did you show up in the depression? Uh, I'm reminded of a, a, f- a friend once gave me a, a book around like a cowboy's rules to life or something <laughs> like a retrograde concept. But I remember there's this like one picture of a couple of cowboys like steering cattle and it's rain and cold. And it just says, when you're riding through hell, keep riding. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought of that many times, you know, oh. like you just keep putting one foot in front of the other And Manuela would ask me in the morning, tell me three things that you're grateful for. And Mm -hmm. so like, I just like, feel like a knot in my stomach. Like I'm not grateful for anything, but I would always find a way to say you, this oatmeal and black coffee. (laughs) And it was at that point more like a psychic obligation to the people that I loved to never put them through what they had just gone through. Mm -hmm. That was, that was my inspiration. And so I felt I owed it to everyone to get healthy. And I knew that if I went off my medication to reclaim, you know, some more hypomanic manic energy or that if I gave up on the regimen that I was putting everyone at risk of going through what we had just been through. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was never going to do that again. The shame that I felt from having struck my girlfriend was so, it was like a noose around my neck. And the only thing I could think of was I'll do anything to never put my loved ones through that again. And that, that was what animated me. And just week after week with the doctor, I would say, you know, are we ever going to go to the antidepressants here? It's like, I literally don't know what to do how to, how to get through this. And the the problem with mania in your history is you can't take an antidepressant is kind of the conventional wisdom Mm -hmm. because it could rocket you up into mania. Yeah. So if you have unipolar depression, yeah, you can take an SSRI, you can take one of these antidepressants, Prozac will breach and fill in the blank. Those medications are typically not on the table if you have bipolar one, because the fear is, is that they will induce mania. So after four or five months of my doctors seeing me just tortured 
he finally said, look, we have two choices. We could do electroconvulsive therapy, mm-hmm. which we don't know why, but it works. But it's extremely hard for a patient to get their brain around doing, right? Mm-hmm. Strapped to the bed, electric shocks. It's like it works. We could do that. Or we could titrate in a little bit of an antidepressant, dial up your mood stabilizer to insulate you from the upside, kind of provide you kind of like with an upper and downer at the same time, Mm -hmm. like Elvis, uppers and downers, (laughs) and then see how that goes and watch you closely. And I said, let's try the antidepressant. And over the course of the next six weeks, it worked. It brought me out. And I was so... I felt like I'd been given a second chance at life. I was able on that journey up to summon the courage to ask Manuela to to marry me after all that had happened. And I remember sitting at a hotel, the Marlton Hotel around the corner from the Blue Hill restaurant where I was going to ask her and I had the ring and I told my parents I was doing it. And my mom said, how do you feel? And I said, I I just feel like she's going to say not yet. Mm. I I was like, I don't think it's going to be an outright no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but everything that happened might be might be too soon and and then she said yes and we both started crying and you know i just i couldn't believe how blessed i was to have such a strong woman who was going to opt in to a life together after everything we'd been through you know even just earlier that year hmm. i want to just ask you a little bit about your your management and how you're looking back on your management and your future as a manager. You know, you, you talked about the er- errors of excitement, you call them. You know, you were a leader, I'm sure, who was just maddening and inspiring all at once, right? You were unpredictable, which is one of the worst things a leader can be because you might be hypomanic and full of energy and big ideas and then depressed and irritable and, and removed, right? And I'm, I'm curious how you think this affected the culture of Bonobos and your leadership. And then I also want to ask you about anger because a theme in your book is really your anger. When someone disagrees with you, you know, you sort of, you, you do use anger quite a bit, but you write that underneath anger is fear. Yeah. So you're remarkably candid about the inconsistencies of you as a leader. And I'm curious, like, how you're squaring that all now in the next phase of your life or what do you, what you want to say about yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, so much to say. I think one of the gifts that I received unexpectedly as a part of my own, let's call it rehabilitation and reintegration coming out of the, the 2016 episode coming out of being diagnosed was this unusual serendipity with the sale of the company. And I think 2016 was hell on earth. And then 2017 was magic, you know, Mm. 10 year anniversary, Walmart acquires Bonobos for 300 million, got married to absolute rock of a woman, converted to Judaism, which gave me kind of an integrated system for the first time. Yeah, thank you. And something that I was excited to want to pass on to our kids, should we have them. And now we have it. 18 month old Isaiah mm. Cubs won the World Series. It was sort of like magic. <laughs> and it was as if nothing had happened, right? Which was part of why this story, I think, is important, which is some things did happen. 
But one of the unexpected gifts on the flip side of all that was I got to become an employee. Mm. And, you know, as you know, have you ever heard an entrepreneur say, you know what I really need next in my career? I need to become an employee. (laughs) (laughs) Never. (laughs) Uh, I need to not work for myself. I need to work for someone else. You never say that. And yet the beauty of doing an acquisition deal uh, for your startup is you become an employee. And so I joined Walmart who acquired Bonobos and I got to work for, for two bosses. My immediate boss was an entrepreneur who I'd admired and known for a long time, Mark Laurie. And then his boss, um, was, and remains, um, Doug McMillan remains the CEO of Walmart and they're (laughs) such good leaders. Yeah. And one of the things, and very different, but one of the unifying things that I noticed about them is they don't talk that much in meetings. They ask a lot of questions, they listen well, and they create an environment where everyone feels safe and comfortable sharing dissenting ideas. Hmm. And so at some point on the journey around that time in my life, and as I was adjusting at home to life with a woman who is extremely good at listening, who is happy to hear dissenting ideas, I was discovering that the desire to be right for me historically was standing in the way of the need to find the truth. Hmm. And so if you reframe, if as I tried to reframe my role from wanting to be right to wanting to get to the right answer, I had to make some massive changes in how I showed up. First, I needed to shut up. Hmm. Second, I needed to think about leadership as asking questions. Third, I needed to identify the quiet people at the table and ask them what they thought to create a more inclusive conversation. And then I needed to recognize anger when I felt it, recognize feelings of frustration or irritability, but treat them as data to be inquired upon rather than as something to act upon Mm. and therefore present a much steadier hand to the enterprise. And I think sometimes vision, visionary leaders are allowed to or expected to be more mercurial. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a professional CEO, you kind of expect to be more steady and more balanced, but perhaps less likely to drive discontinuous innovations. And I think I got to see with Mark and Doug that that need not be the case. Yeah. Doug has the the steadiest hand I've ever seen on the tiller and has done some incredibly bold things as the CEO of Walmart, seen it in the share price, which is whatever doubled or tripled since he started. Hmm. And then I saw it with Mark, who's maybe the most visionary entrepreneur um, on the planet or certainly in the top five. Hmm. And he was a very steady person to work for. And, and I, so I realized I could be better. It was no, it was no longer, uh, I was no longer going to be able to make the excuse of, Hey, well, if you want the good that I bring, then you've got to deal with the bad. Right. No, I can, I can improve on the bad and still offer the good. Cut through the myth-making that we all 
we all surround mercurial leaders with. That's right. My last question for you. In the book, you ask yourself, could you have built bonobos if you hadn't been bipolar? Or I'm asking, if you had been medicated and stable, would the results have been as good? Would everything have been the same? What do you think? Yeah. So one one language tweak that I learned when writing the book, which is none of us are bipolar, but we have bipolar disorder. Thank you. Thank it's you. Yes. Sort of this funny thing, right? It's like you have diabetes, you are not diabetes, right? <laughs> you have cancer, you are not cancer. And yet with mental illness, we tell you that you are the illness, the sum total of your identity. And so, by the way, I had to fix it in my own book as I wrote it. <laughs> but your your question um, is wonderful. Look, here's my new take on this. Bipolar disorder stood in the way of bonobos being even better. If mm -hmm. I... And we can't do this, but if I could go back in time and be in a place now where I've been so fortunate to get healthy and as a part of that healthiness, still have what my doctor calls peak experiences, mm -hmm. still have the ability to have that energetic, hypomanic day. As he says, might we all be controllably hypomanic every day? It's such <laughs> you know, a great it's, feeling it's, sometimes. <laughs> it's state, yeah, it's when you're in a state of flow and you have ideas and everything's happening for a reason. We're all entitled to access that mood state with some amount of our days, right? <laughs> What's unhealthy is if it's for like 100 days in a row and then it flips into depression. So I think we could have been even better. Mm. I think that bipolar disorder was certainly an asset yeah. And, and it was also a liability. And I think the learning for me on this journey to getting healthy is we can unlock the inherent assets in our personality without succumbing to the downsides of the illness or the disorder that might be underlying it. That That's my hope. And for people out there who are dealing with an issue I uh, would discourage you from thinking, you know what, this issue is really, it's hard to manage and it's messy, but it's a part of the method of my madness, I think is an excuse to making the hard decisions to get healthy. And I'm, I'm very convinced that even better things are possible when you're in a steady and a stable place. Andy Dunn, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. And thank you to our advertisers for supporting. If you want to share your story about mental health and work, send me a message on LinkedIn. I'll always respond. If you love the show, tell your friends, subscribe or follow us and leave a review. From LinkedIn Presents, this is Maura Aaron's Mealy.